This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. As we get ready to close out the school year, we have some K-12 teachers who are looking forward to a relaxing summer, but increasingly we have teachers who are looking at their contract renewals with mixed emotions. Gratitude at another year of employment combined with the sinking feeling in their stomach that the salary combined with increasing politicization of our elementary and secondary classrooms is just not worth it. We're joined today by Dr. Cunell Cooper. Cunell is a community builder who has changed lives of elementary students across the state of Minnesota with his genuine leadership style and willingness to try new things. Cunell's dissertation, The Perspective of Black Male Middle School and High School Students in a Mentoring Programs, makes it clear that building a mentoring program in our K-12 schools is not just nice to have, it's essential to the success of Black boys and men as they navigate an educational system that was not built for them. It's this perspective that we're delighted to have on this episode of Get Uncomfortable as we talk about the importance of mentorship and community building among the folks teaching our kids. Cunell, I'm honored you that you took time to join us today on Get Uncomfortable. Dr. Cunell Cooper, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and share community with us today. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I really uh, appreciate you inviting me on the show, Adam. Thank you so much. Cunell, talk a little bit. Let's center this in what your current work is and more importantly, what drew you to education? Um, what made, what kind of lit that fire in you, made you go into education? You're an administrator now. Had you then leave the classroom to do administrative work? Take us along that journey a little bit. Absolutely. Well, currently I'm an elementary principal at Prairie View Elementary in Eden Prairie. Uh, this is my first year in Eden Prairie. And prior to that, I've been an administrator uh, in eight eight years uh, in Invergrove Heights. So I was uh, a principal a principal there for five and assistant for three. What got me, we go right to the beginning here. What really got me into education was my brother. Now, my older brother was my mentor. And I never, I will never forget all the things he taught me. And at one point growing up, going through school, I wanted to follow a different crowd. And I remember going to school, wanting to say, I got to sag my pants like this. I got to talk like this. And he pulled me to the side one day and said, you need to be you. You're unique. You're different. You need to be you. You don't need to follow around any other groups. You need to be who you are. Your name is unique. Cunell, you need to be you. And, and that is something that drove me for the rest of my life is to have him come and tell me those things. And, you know, my parents were very big on education. There was no way I was coming home with a C at all. I didn't miss school. So school was very important. So at that point, my brother did those things for me and lots of other things. I had a passion that I was going to change lives. That's it. How it was going to happen. So I went to school, became a teacher, graduated from Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti, Michigan, moved out to Minnesota in 2008 and started off teaching in St. Paul. Now, I did leave education for a little bit, and we'll get into that, but I left for a little bit, 
and then came back because that passion, that calling for me to impact lives, change my lives. And I taught fourth grade for a few years while I was getting my master's and administrative license and got called out to become an assistant principal and principal. And there I go. And at the end of the day, my whole thing is what draws me every day is to make an impact on kids. Well, and what I heard from you and we share that work, right, is that that calling that ministry around the work. Um, you know, I have a theology degree, thought I was going to be a pastor. My pastor still remember because I was listening to too much public enemy and Eric B and Rakim. And I didn't think I was good enough. Right. I mean, I, I'm a sinner. Boy, I don't, I don't know how I can be a pastor. And my, I still remember pastor cranky saying to me, God opens doors. You need to be in him enough to recognize it and faithful enough to walk through, even though you don't know why. And that's much like you talk about with your brother that's guided my whole life because I'm a first generation guy who grew up in a, a family of some abuse and addiction. I had no path laid out for me. It was just seeing those doors open. I think about the Billie Jean video with Michael Jackson when the street lights up and he just keeps stepping, right? I don't know what, what I'm going and making those decisions, but always being grounded by and guided in the ministry of the work, right? impacting people's lives through individual lives within the systems. Cause then you start seeing, well, these systems are really broken. So if I can start changing systems, you now talk a little bit about, you said you took a pause from education, talk a little bit about what necessitated that pause or made you think about, okay, I need to take this pause and do something else, what you did. And then what drew you back? So there are a couple of factors that made me take a pause from education. Number one, it was the cultural environment change. I, mean, I came from Inkster, Detroit, Michigan. I was around mostly African-Americans. I moved to Minnesota and the culture had changed. Let alone trying to figure out how to navigate education. I'm just trying to navigate how to get to school and to work. And then being around a culture that I knew or was used to and comfortable. So I go into a school, I'm the only black male in that school. So there's no one that looks like me or to be able to navigate what I may go through or some things that I come across. And so being new to a place, being in an education environment where I feel like I didn't have support. And when you go to school, it's different when you step out there in the real world. What you hear about in college and you navigating school it's totally different when you get into that building and you're in front of the kids and you're dealing with different things. It's different. So I said, this is not for me. So I left and became um, a coordinator for an assisted living home. And it was something I did in college as a care manager. And I did that. But while I did that, I did it for about a year. I, I had this calling when, when, when there's something on your heart and that's in your passion, you got to do it. So I left. And I had nothing. I, I left with my job and said, I'm getting back to education. I had an eviction notice on my door because I literally had nothing. And I started off subbing around the school district. I started off being uh, a para paraprofessional, a uh, substitute teacher until I got my opportunity and ended up right back into the same school I was, but was different uh, leadership. I had a black female principal on uh, a black assistant, black male assistant principal. And I was coming into a different environment. And plus, I've grown a little bit and got used to the environment. And I started making some networks and connections. 
So those things right there is what took me out of education. But then coming back and feeling like I had some more support and being able to touch the leaders around me that look like me helped me stay back and get connected. Yeah. I think about, you know, a piece of scripture that talks about God putting us, grace putting us in places that our character is not yet prepared, right? And he was preparing. He was preparing the situation, but also preparing you. We all need that time away for a minute to realize, ooh, I, I was kind of blessed to be there. Um, we we didn't talk about this off off Mike, but uh, our oldest daughter is a teacher, middle school, God help us, and and now an administrator. And I still remember she had a rough undergrad. And there was a point in her experience where passing those licensure tests are hard. But see, you have two parents who are educators. So we just kept saying, no, there's a calling on your life. It always has been. You're not going to pivot and get this other degree. You're called to be an educator. That's what you're made to do. If we have to keep paying for you to retake the test, if we have to get a tutor to help you, and now she's dedicated her life to working in some of the most impoverished middle schools in Louisville, Kentucky, has made a huge impact. Talk a little bit about, because you you alluded to, not a lot of people that look like you as a black male working in education. Education, it's always been hard getting black folks, especially men, to go into K-12 education. Talk about how those experiences um, and the recruiting part, because I'm sure that's part of your work now, is trying to get other brothers to go into K-12 work as teachers and as administrators. Talk about what some of those barriers are to those recruitment pieces and how you work to kind of break those down. Okay, absolutely. And, and, and I just want to go back to something that you said here about when I was out of education, there was things that that guy was working on and giving me the skills. And I think about that and I think about through that whole time I was out of education and becoming back in, all those things prepared me to become a principal at such a young age. And I could step into the role and say, I've done this. My first job was being in uh, maintenance, uh, custodian. So I can say, I know what it's like, how a school should, you know, start the year off dealing with meds, giving insulin shots, being a substitute, being para, being a specialist teacher. So all those things built me up to when I was a coordinator, it really prepared me to become a principal. So you're right. All those things along the way helped me. Now, as a as a Black male coming into education, one of the biggest barriers, it starts off, you got to think about what trauma happened when you were in school. Why would I want to come back to a place where it wasn't for me? It wasn't made for me. I think, think about my own experience in school, going to a place where I don't see someone that looks like me. And when you're young, you can't name it all, but you know, it doesn't feel right. And it didn't feel good. So it, it wasn't until my freshman year of high school, I finally saw a black male teacher. So, so that's one of the barriers that come up. And then the toughest thing is, okay, when you do have a BIPOC educator come into your building, how do you retain them? That's that's the part that has to be focused on. How do we continue to support our BIPOC educators when they come in and be able to align them and get uh, whether it's affinity groups or if you don't have enough within your district, how do you reach out and pull? And that's been one of the best things that's happened, happened to me because I've got a really close group of other Black male principals that we can talk about situations. Well, and I think there's there's a huge piece to recognizing that calling 
like like you said, I was talking to a group of of higher ed student success folks, and we were talking about the reason why most BIPOC folks have chosen, and most of us have not chosen to do this work. It was chosen for us, right? So you are choosing to work in places of trauma that were built to keep people like you out, period, right, at a PWI. And you're doing that because you want to pave the way and make it easier for someone else. And so one of the realities is, though, in some of the hiring and the recruiting that we do in K-12 or higher ed, where we still say the market is so hard, but we're still only drawn to sameness and that fit, right? And then we realize, okay, we may bring in someone of color, but then we have this color blindness and not recognizing that the person of color is there for a whole different reason. Yes, it may have great benefits. Yes, there may be these other things. And yes, some of our white colleagues may have the same calling on their life, but they aren't choosing to be in places of trauma. They're being, they're choosing to be in places that were built for them. You are choosing, you know, to be in a place that has caused you trauma to make space for other people so they don't deal with that same level of trauma. That's a whole different thing. And imagine if we stopped looking for fit in education and we started looking for it in education. Who are the people who have that calling on their life who the work is not going to be an extra burden? Because as you know, one of the re really interesting pieces of research that I've done is like it's like 44% of people that start in education leave the profession within five years. What are some of the reasons why people are leaving? People of color, uh, our white folks, white colleagues, white people that are leaving education. What are some of the reasons that our people are leaving? And what are some of the things that we can all do to help support our teachers to stick? You, you, well, you hit on a lot of great points there and about coming back into a system and about people are choosing to come back into a system and how education, the system is always looking for this certain fit, but everybody in education has changed. The world is changing. So one of the biggest things why people are leaving is a couple of things I said before is about once again, what you experience is not what it's like in there. And then, then, then the level of support, there's a lot of uh, things that are going on where Staff needs support. Students need support that is not there. Um, and it's, it's a tough job. It is a tough job for you to step into the world of education and people, you know, to talk about pay and all those different things. But I think about your health and the stress because you deal with so many different things that come up with students in your classroom and what type of trauma that they come with. You take that. You wear that because you care so much about it. So after some time, that can really wear on you and it can burn you out, especially if you don't have the resources or support around you. And you can see how the differences that come up in different districts. Another thing to bring up too, as you talk about like uh, teachers leaving the district, the profession, 44%. But I look at even black males, less, less than 2% of black males are in education. That means that's not enough Black males in education to fill up the Gopher Stadium. You know, it's I mean, for the whole just just the state of education. So, um, yeah, it's it's just that it's it's a lot that that you take on as an educator. Well, and then you add the attacks on curriculum, right? I mean, the reality is I wouldn't work where I work if I couldn't be black and a man. 
in that space first. I get what my job is, but what my calling is, is to be black and a man first, to make space first. And if someone were to say to me at my current place I work, um, well, that's not your area. No, that is my area. If it involves things that I'm called to do as being a black person and a man, which is to stand what I would call table tip and foot wash injustice, you know, like my mentor did in his life. So I think it's also seeing people and giving them space. I can't imagine in a K-12 space where somebody is telling you how you can see your students. If a student says to you, my name last month, my name was Joshua, and now my name is Janice, I, I, my, your whole job is to do no harm and to love your students. But you have local and state and national leaders telling you how you can see the students, how you can support them, how you can teach rather than an indoctrinated curriculum, how you can teach true American history, good, bad, and otherwise, I would imagine that that's even harder for Black folks as well as allies to say, you know what, I don't even want to go, if, because there's a calling on this in my life, nobody but God is going to tell me how to see my students, what to teach my students, how to love my students and make space for my students. But in this space, I have all these other voices limiting that, I can't deal with the trauma and the pay being X, Y, and Z and the work being all these things and then have somebody tell me that I can't see, love, support, teach the way that God has called me to do it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. To me, like you said, I have to show up who I am and, and be authentically me. And so when you're asking for me or anyone else to show up and not be able to tell or speak who they are or their truth, I mean, that, that's hurtful because if you take away somebody's history, you're taking away their culture, you're taking away their lifeline. I always think about it like this, and someone gave me a great example of this. If I lived in a neighborhood and it's my family and somebody else's family, and that family did something and hurt me, and everybody knows about it in the community, but I can't talk about it. I can't share about it. It's a part of who I am. And I have to keep it hidden and act like it didn't happen and continue to face the trauma of it over time. If you just think about that, if that was a personally happened to you and you think about everything that that's that that's around in education, we post to public education is a system that's supposed to accept all and accept everyone when they come in and bring out the best of, of what that student is, who that person is, and, and bring all those things out. So when you're faced with those things, it does make it hard. And that does make people get to a point where I got into education, like pick up my story, to save lives, to impact lives. And if all of a sudden I'm being told that I can't help that person be who they are, to understand their history, to understand who they are and bring all those things out of them. It, 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 it just, like you said, your calling is being stunted of what, of what you can do. Well, and whether you're in a K-12 space or in a higher ed space, I say this all the time. The president of my institution could tell me, Adam, don't talk to, don't say that to students. And unless Jesus of Nazareth tells me, don't talk to students the way I do, I'm just going, I got too much. I'm 52. I've been doing this a long time. Okay. I got thousands of students who are evidence of the calling on my life. It's all I know how to do is vibe and deal with and support and guide and love on students. 
I wouldn't recommend it for everyone the way I do it, but my students, I, I in class every day, um, first week of class, at the end of class, I always say, all right, love y'all, see you next week. And they'll leave. And the first couple of classes, they always kind of look, did he say? And after like the second week of class, we were sitting and some of the students had hung around later and they were talking or whatever, shooting the breeze. And one of the students, I said, you know, and these are, you know, Kentucky, rural Kentucky, Appalachian, Louisville. I mean, it's just typical University of Kentucky students. Student, I said, was it weird that I say love you in class? No. Like this is a kid pledging a fraternity looks at me and says, because I know you do. I said, how do you know? One of the girls said, we just know. Okay, bye. That, that, that was it, right? So it's that, now don't say it unless you do it. Like you really do love them in that way, that agape love, right? That community love, that village building love. Talk a little bit about one of the things that is happening is that a lot of white educators who are allies and accomplices with us in the work are just caving. They're just, it's too much. They're living in places, not like Eden Prairie, where they're, what they teach is under attack, how they teach is under attack, who they are and who they love and who they're married to is under attack. And what they're not realizing is that all of these local and state laws are a violation of the First Amendment this would not, this is not going to win, even in the Supreme Court that we have now. We just need someone to get fired. That, that's what we need to have happen. Because what's happening is the teachers are saying, well, I'm just going to leave the profession. Well, if you were going to not be a teacher in the fall anyway, might as well let them fire you. Teach what you want to teach and let them do what they got to do. And then get the ALC, the ACLU and get... Um, the Urban League and get all these organizations to help fund some attorneys and let's fight this thing in the way that it has to. What are some of the best advices? Because I've seen teachers, young teachers, amazing educators just quit, just leave, rather than standing in it, building coalitions and fighting for their and their students' First Amendment rights and saying, you know what, you are not going to get in the way of my rights. Now, I tell this story oftentimes when I was standing on Edmund Pettus Bridge at the crescendo, looking down and imagining people, you know, elected officials essentially coming at you with dogs and billy clubs and on horses. There's a part of history that you all in, in K-12 and through everywhere, it's one of the keys of teaching that. It isn't just teaching Black kids Black history and Indigenous kids Indigenous history. It's teaching white kids American history, right? and understanding what resistance and justice look like. Stand on the bridge, educator. Let them do what they, they ain't gonna lynch you. They're not gonna, John Lewis, you, you'll be okay. All they're gonna do is potentially let you go. And then, then we can have some court cases that can decide this thing once and for all, because this is an impact on not just the inalienable right of an educator to do no harm and teach their students, almost like that oath that a doctor has, that Hippocratic oath, right? But this is an impact on an educator's human rights as a United States citizen to teach students and to say and speak the way that they choose. Talk about what you would advise educators, principals that are white, that are being pushed out of the profession because they feel like they cannot teach the way they want to. What, what do they need to do to build coalition and support kind of like you've done with other black principals? 
Absolutely. You, you, you have to come together and get your allies together. Now, understanding that this work is not easy when it comes to this, and it's going to be hard along the way, but you have to get your groups together and be very intentional about when it comes to the people that are being placed in positions in your school board, district leadership, and even just in your local government when things are happening and are make or and these decisions are being made about what you can teach or what's allowed in the schools, but you have to come together and, and make that. You said a great point. I mean, no, no matter what, you're not going to be at the edge of the bridge like John Lewis. I mean, you you stand there and yes, it's going to be tough, but you think about that calling because what you're doing is, is you're making an impact on the next generation that's coming up. You're making these changes along the way. And you're right. There's going to be some court cases and things that's going to happen because they can't they can't change these things. But you got to stand there and not let it push you to the side. Remember your calling and what you're there for. But yeah, you got to get your like-minded groups together and pay attention. A lot of times, sometimes we can miss these local elections and school board members. You cannot miss that. Those, you know, those individuals can have a huge impact on how things go and what's going to happen in the future. So you got to pay attention to that um, and make those moves. Well, and if school board wasn't important, it wouldn't be in Bill Barr's playbook. It, it it straight up is, and I think for some of our some of some of my white family who are listening, when you hear build coalition, you think this huge thing. People were just getting together at church. Hey man, you want to go? That's coalition building. We there was no Zoom, right? We can build Zoom coalition. We. Cunell and I have never been in the same physical space together, but that's my brother, Rachel Hansen, my producer, and I have shared physical space once in our lives. Some of the best coalitions I have are built in these electronic formats where you can get together and have coffee and just have a bitch session and talk about, look, bro, you ain't crazy. No, you, no, no, you aren't seeing that. You know, it is the way it is. That's the kind of things that white educators can do across districts, across states, across countries to create some coalition to say, we're going to all huddle up together and we're going to stand in this together. It doesn't have to be this glamorized idea of a bus boycott or Selma. It can just be, we're going to stand together. And the reality is you ain't going to be teaching in the fall anyway. You already said you're going to quit. So might as well mess up some shit. Ooh, that, uh, theology degree. We just rhyming and everything. Woo. So Cunell, talk a little bit, because you brought up the school boards. And one of the things I know enough about you is that you were a part of um, writing a letter regarding um, after Joyce Floyd's murder in your local district as an administrator, as an educator with others. What could what can local school boards do and administrators do and teachers do and parents do to be able to create psychological safety for not just the black and brown staff and faculty, but the students, right? They were all impacted by George Floyd's murder, all of the students. What can those folks do to create more safety for people so that people feel safe to teach? You all feel safe enough to pen a letter and say, this is a concern of ours. What kind of response did you get? What kind of response would be the kind of thing you would say, that was perfect. That was exactly what I was looking for. Well, a couple of things about what a school board or a district could do is, is stand up and not just 
be in the middle. You got to be an anti-racist. You got to stand on what it is and 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 be real about it, about what was wrong in the situation. And once again, that as a community, there's work that needs to be done. I would encourage any school district, school board and district, when it comes to doing diversity, equity, inclusion work, everybody has to be involved in it. It can't be school board over here and the school district is doing this. We're all in it and doing the work together because it takes everybody. Uh, and before I go into my experience with the letter, I think the, one of the biggest things, too, that we miss out on is businesses usually talk to their customers about what they need or how they're feeling. And sometimes we forget to talk to our kids. We forget to talk to our high school or middle school and elementary students about how they're feeling and how what's best for them and how they feel protected in their spaces and in their schools. So you've got to do that. They'll tell you a whole lot that sometimes you can miss. But even going back into when I penned um, an email about the murder of George Floyd and the things that what we need to do as a school and as a and as a whole community, uh, I got mixed reviews, which was which was like, come on, we've got to do the right thing, and it and it said a lot. So when you're getting those mixed reviews, it can't be well. This word here doesn't sound right, or this here. No, we've got to stand on and be anti racist you can't stand in the middle or don't say anything you definitely got to show up because then that shows your customers your students your people like i know where this this person stands i know where my school stands this district stands so that's very important well and i so appreciate you sticking your neck out and saying look we have to be this right this is this is the calling on us these this is our audience our students are watching us they are learning from us, not just what we do in the classroom, but what we do in our lives. And they are seeing how the grown folks going to respond to this. You know, are they going to say this isn't cool or they're going to worry about their comfort? You know, this whole the whole premise of this podcast is we don't talk about certain things at family gatherings, race, politics, religion. Right. And we have to talk about those things. That's the reason why the same plays that were working in the schoolhouse door in Tuscaloosa, Alabama are working today. We're burning books, Cunell. We're burning books. Like hop on pop and just book. What? what? And then we, we all look back on those times when people are screaming in black and white and we are those same people. The devil is just working the same place over and over and over again because comfort is more important than trauma. Rather than saying, you know what, nah, this isn't going to be my grandbabies. They are not going to live this life. And so if Papa has to be uncomfortable, I'm good. I will be uncomfortable. I have four grandchildren. They will have a better life than I had. I think one of the things that you talked about that is so poignant is asking folks to be anti-racist right? And anti-homophobic and anti-xenophobic and anti-misogynist. Not just, I'm not a racist, but you have to put some work into it. Somebody asked me the other day, what is justice? We want justice. I said, justice is an outcome, but justice is also a process. Resistance is justice. Reading a book is justice, right? Cooking it for yourself. Having a garden is justice. 
going to church is justice because justice is about resistance. And some of that resistance comes in coalition. Some of that resistance comes in yourself. And so empowering our kids to realize that, you know what? There's certain principalities and power that don't want you in school. How justice looks is you sit your hind parts in that school. One of the last things I was going to tell you at the University of Alabama, the schoolhouse door is still there. That was at the University of Alabama. The students, the auditorium is still there. The women's basketball team and the volleyball team play in Foster Auditorium. And now there's a whole plaza dedicated to Vivian Malone, James Hood, the two students that um, George Wallace was preventing from enrolling at the University of Alabama several years earlier, Arthene Lucy Foster uh, went to the University of Alabama. Alabama for one day. And so the plaza is now dedicated to those students, but the schoolhouse door is still there where he stood. Every single year, Black students take pictures in front of that schoolhouse door with their fists raised. Queer students take pictures because we're going to reclaim that door, right? In states where our people were property, I'm going to own property and have a degree. Talk a little bit about the significance to your students of that level of resistance, right? Why you chose to pen the email and why you as a leader, I'm sure, are creating a space where you are seeing the authenticity of each person and making space for not only your colleagues, but for your students. Oh, that's 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 powerful, like you said, just going back to that experience about how those students come back every time and take a picture in front of that door. It's those type of things that help make an impact and make a change. One of the things I think about is when you go back, and I think about if you being a, if, when you're a kid and you're growing up in the home and there's something that happens, you're going to sit back and see what 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 mom going to do about this? What's dad going to do about this? You know, that says a lot about how they how things can go out and what you do going forward in your life. And so first off, stepping out there, I hope I give kids the, the ability to use their voice and to give them encouragement that when you step out here and do something, you can make something happen. So when kids see that, I want them, I, I always want to create a space and a school where kids feel like they, not feel, but they do have a voice. They feel like they belong. That when you walk through the school, they can see themselves, no matter what it is, you know, white, black, uh, if you're, whatever, whatever it is, you see yourself walking through that school and to give them power that I need to hear from you. It's so funny that you um, continue to talk, you talk about this. I was just going around to my classrooms today, my fifth grade classrooms saying, I need to hear from you. I'm new into this building and I want to make plans going forward. So I got them coming in to talk with teachers at a staff meeting coming up because your voice is important. You got to step out there and you can make a change for anything. So I always want to use my voice in any way that I can to help shape or change the future of education. And yes, it's, it's a hard road, but it's a calling that's on my heart. It's something that I got to do. So when, when I think about going back to that letter, uh, all the instances in history, it just builds on it. It builds on it. It gives you the power that you can do it. And that's what I want to always give kids, that you have a voice, you matter. Hmm. Dr. Kuno Cooper, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your work, brother. Thank you for listening to the calling on your life on behalf of the kids and of the community and all the educators. We really appreciate you for all you do. Thank you again for your time today. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between Adam Smith and me, Rachel Hansen. There are a number of ways that you could support the show, and we would appreciate any support you could give. Uh, You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can send us an email, and our email addresses are in the show notes. Or you can share an episode with a friend. This will help us to build community and promote true healing through uncomfortable conversations. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.